This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, I want to start today by going into the uh, into the Wayback Hockey Machine. I want to rewind to 1984 and Vancouver, the Canucks. This is when Frank Griffith Sr. owned the Vancouver Canucks. Now, Griffith was never a big fan of head coach Roger Nielsen. Nielsen always sort of ran afoul of managers and certainly owners as well. See his time in Toronto with uh, the late Harold Ballard. But nonetheless, uh, Griffiths, not a fan of Roger Nielsen, despite the fact that he took the Vancouver Canucks to the Stanley Cup final in 82 and bowed out against the powerhouse New York Islanders, wasn't a fan and wanted him fired. So there was one game where Vancouver went into Edmonton and lost 6-5. to five. Now, in 1984... Nobody was beating the Edmonton Oilers. You are not touching the Edmonton Oilers. This is one of the greatest teams we've ever... One of the greatest teams that hockey has ever seen. You know, I mentioned that Islanders dynasty a couple of seconds ago in 82 that beat the Vancouver Canucks. Edmonton, as we all know, right there with them as one of the best teams of all time. So they lose 6-5. to And Harry Neal, who's the general manager, goes back to the hotel that day and on his... Uh, on his answering machine, remember answering machines? On his answering machine, there's a message from Frank Griffiths Sr., who's vacationing in Hawaii, and it's very brief. And it goes like this. Have you fired Roger yet? And Harry sort of scrambles, uh, calls his owner in Hawaii, and explains what just happens. Like, hey, you know what? We're right there neck and neck with the Edmonton Oilers. It's only a 6-5 game. Like, we're right in there for three periods. We're heading to Winnipeg uh, uh, tomorrow, and we got our you know real shot at getting two points here and coming back and making a run here in the Smite Division. And the owner said something that I've thought of often. Here's what Frank Griffiths said to general manager Harry Neal about Roger Nielsen. Quote, Harry, there's no need for two people to lose their jobs over one decision. At which point, Harry Neal fired Roger Nielsen. I don't know why I bring that up randomly today to kick off the show. But Ross Atkins returns as the general manager of the Arizona, I mean, Toronto Blue Jays. That's your big sports headline in Canada today. Meanwhile, getting back to hockey here for a couple of seconds, a few things from last night. We're going to go over here with, uh, with Shana Goldman. Elliot, by the way, traveling today. Uh, Aaron Portsline comes up uh, in a couple of moments here at the bottom of the hour. Andrew Raycroft and Megan Mickelson will talk about the Calgary Flames. Uh, Connor Bedard buries his first. It is a wraparound. You will see that for the rest of your life as a highlight. And I'm sure Linus Allmark would like to forget it. But the Boston Bruins win that game. Beat down. And barfing in goalie masks uh, in Vancouver. The Canucks absolutely handed to the Edmonton Oilers. Brock Bresser with four. Austin Matthews with a hat trick. Uh, the Leafs uh, have to fight back not once but twice. Uh, overcoming multi-goal deficits. And they barely hang on to beat the Montreal Canadiens. Jacob Markstrom shines. Flames knock off the Winnipeg Jets 5-3. to three. No Pinto. No points for the Ottawa Senators. They drop one of the Carolina Hurricanes. Four points for, and I hate using this term, but what else are you going to say about him? For the most underrated player in the NHL, four points for Mika Rantanen as the Avs knock off the Kings in a battle of cup contenders. Buffalo, where they wrap up another key piece in Owen Power in seven games on the board this evening. Coming up a little bit later on, we will hear from Lindy Ruff, the head coach of the new 
Jersey Devils, who, as uh, Joey Kenward reminds us online, in 1993, I just mentioned Roger Nelson a second ago, in 1983, rather, no, 1993, Lindy Ruff retires as a player, and immediately he takes a position as assistant coach with Roger Nelson in Florida. As his New Jersey Devils face off against the Detroit Red Wings tonight, it marks, this is remarkable, 30 uninterrupted seasons. Of course, there were lockouts along the way, but 30 uninterrupted seasons behind a bench in the NHL for Lindy Ruff. We'll hear from the New Jersey Devils coach coming up uh, in a couple of moments here. Meanwhile, from the Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast, she is the one and only Shana Goldman. She joins me now. Uh, Shana, I um, I don't know why I brought up that Roger Nelson example off the top of the show where, you know, there's no reason for two people to lose their jobs today, uh, at which point Harry Neal fired Roger Nelson. Um, I'm a big Blue Jays fan. My first job ever uh, it was 1985, working for Versa Foods at Exhibition Stadium, running uh, jumbo cokes and hot dogs up and down the stairs. And I think I only just took the job so I can watch ball games that year. Yes, that was a year of Ernie Witt and Bruce Keeson and George Bell. Um, I'm a big Blue Jays fan, always have been. I know you're a Yankees fan and always have been. Before we get to hockey, I know how I feel about my Blue Jays right now. How do you feel about your Yankees? I didn't even know baseball was still being played. I thought the season ended like two months ago. Like, what is this that we're even talking about? I can't believe we're only having breakup day now. Um, what do I think about my Yankees? Um, I, this is the year I, I watched the least amount of baseball ever. And it's not like, oh, she's a front runner. She only watches them when they're good. It was just yeah. after the deadline, you just see like the mistakes made. And you're like, I can't invest that much of my time in this. I was watching whatever was on like MLB Network over just watching the Yankees because it was pitiful this year. Uh, I, 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 took the, uh, I, I took my boys to a game at Yankee Stadium for the first time this summer. It was a Subway Series game. Uh, Yankees got lit up by the Mets. I think it might have been Verlander. Either Verlander's last appearance with the Mets or second last because shortly after he got traded, Pete Alonso uh, went yard twice. It was, it was awesome. And then part of me is like, oh, man, we just took the kids to Yankee Stadium and they just got lit up. I know what it feels like to be a Blue Jays fan, but... <laughs> Yankees fan this year is next level. But uh, to hockey and uh, to, to, to happier things, and I know it's only a two-day audit of the NHL, so I don't really want to read into to much after two days other than, you know, it's, it's tough not to be concerned when issues that you think will be issues all season long appear in the first game. Case in point. Um, the Maple Leafs last night have to eat one uh, almost against the Montreal Canadiens and a real problem defending. We know that Brad Living wants to redo this blue line. That's not exactly a secret. Um, you look at the Edmonton Oilers, and we said this team looks great. This team looks loaded, cup contenders. But what about the goaltending? Uh, both Skinner and Jack Campbell, Campbell who started, both faced 16 shots, and they each surrendered four goals. You know, I, I know that, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what's, what's, the, what's the phrase, um, you know, when, uh, when, uh, when, when something happens and you have a bias towards it going into an event, whatever that is, it happened last night with the Oilers and it happened <laughs> with the Maple Leafs. Which one should we talk about first? Should we go should we go with the Oilers? I mean, I didn't know that there's another eighty one games to play. I think that their season's over. It's done. Com- contention hopes are gone. <laughs> but you watch that game and you you look at an issue that popped up last year, right? And it's 
does anybody know how to defend on this team sometimes? Like, that is the biggest thing for me because you know the goaltending is not the most stable. You know that they're absolutely mm-hmm. hounds on the puck offensively, right? Like, they they really have made this a better, more versatile, more diverse, more deep offensive group. But the blue line's the problem. You go into the playoffs last year, and it felt like everybody forgot how to defend except for Ekholm and Bouchard. And I don't love to use the playoffs as, like, my metric of what I'm basing things on because it's such a small sample. It's a different yeah. environment. But – you see a game already with that outcome. Yes, they're shorthanded. Yes, they're running 11 forwards. But this is a team that knows how to do that, don't forget. Last year, I think they ran 11 forwards 70, 43% of the time. And they were a better team at 5-on-5 five five below the surface when they did run with 11 forwards because you're getting extra time of McDavid and Dreisaitl. But you definitely have an issue if you pull out at home and everything comes apart at the teams. And it was an issue really everywhere. It was wrong goaltending, absolutely. But you needed that you're not going to fall apart because of one player. You needed that your team that is built to contend for a cup is going to do more than, you know, is actually going to break even below the surface and be the better team and, you know, do a better job of creating quality chances and limiting them. Mm -hmm. But both teams yesterday, we should point out playing 11 and six, which is rare. I'm not sure that I've ever seen, I don't know that I've ever seen a game where both teams are running out 11 and six, but there it was yesterday uh, with the Vancouver Canucks and the Edmonton Oilers. I think your point about Matias Eichholm was bang on. Um, We all know about Connor McDavid. We all know about Leon Dreisaitl and we saw him take once again, you know, the impossible shot, which he seems to always score on. And I always shake my head. Uh, How does he score consistently from that angle? Like he scores like from the goal line on one timers. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, but you know, in a, in a weird kind of way, I mean, McDavid always wins the heart and the Leon can win the heart, but Really, you're right. Things do fall apart and can fall apart quickly when Matthias Ekholm is not in that lineup. You know, kind of like how Washington fell apart last year when John Carlson got injured. Like, everything just caved. Everything just fell apart when Carlson got hurt. No Matthias Ekholm is bad news for the Edmonton Oilers. That is the understatement of the day. Yeah, and, you know, you don't want it. This isn't even their number one defenseman, right? You know, he, someone that comes into the group last year and stabilizes Evan Bouchard's team and helps them maximize someone who looks like is primed for a breakout season. The difference in his game when he had such a capable partner. It slotted Dar- uh, Darnell Nurse a little bit more appropriately. You know, he becomes more of a second-pair guy mm-hmm. if Bouchard and Ekholm can be that true number-one pair. And that has a nice trickle-down effect on the rest of the lineup because their depth isn't perfect, right? And it's fine enough for now. It's okay. I think they could still use one more defenseman or need someone like a Broberg to take a big step forward. It felt like they sheltered him so much Mm -hmm. last year, and he has to show that they can give him more because you don't want to be handing those minutes to Cody Ceci. So you have some problems to work through. You have 81 games to do it. We all know that. But when it's an existing problem that we were all questioning before the season even started, and immediately game one you have an egg on your face, it's not the best look. Yeah. Yeah, not 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 great at all. And the other end of the rink, the Vancouver Canucks, and, and first of all, like some big performances from Elias Patterson, and we all know the Elias Patterson story this season. Uh, JT Miller with uh, with one goal and three assists as well, same as as Patterson. But uh, you know, uh, he, Quinn Hughes with with three assists as well, the new captain of the Vancouver Canucks. Great seeing all those captains out there yesterday, especially Orlin Kurtenbach near and dear uh, to my heart. Connor Garland scores, and we all know that uh, him and his agent Judd Moldaver have been given the green light. Uh, to try to help facilitate a trade. Um, but front and center in all of it, someone that's had 
and it's hard not to feel for the guy has had just an awful couple of years um, off the ice, which translates on the ice. Brock Besser puts up four. Um, I know Edmonton has its woes defending. I know the goaltending wasn't, you know, exactly, um, you know, what wasn't exactly uh, a combination of Ken Dryden, Bernie Perrant, and the ghost of Terry Sawchuk. But still, you got to feel good for four goals for Brock Besser. Do you have a thought on him? Yeah, absolutely. You have to feel good about it because this is someone, and I think the thing is we get spoiled by players who can do it all sometimes, but we expect everyone to be able to do it, right? You have to be a multidimensional player. You have to be a dual threat. And the fact of the matter is there are a lot of players who aren't, but on a good team that can be maximized. The weaknesses in the games can be masked and, you know, the bright spots can be amplified. And it feels like the Canucks just haven't been good enough to be able to do that for Brock Besser. You don't want it that he's your number one winger. You want him that he's your really good complimentary top six winger. And if they can, you know, find that right spot for him, I think he can really crush it. It feels like this is someone primed for a bounce back season. You know, his strength is his shot. He can get to the quality areas of the ice. And last night he had eight shot attempts. Seven of them are scoring chances um, in all situations. Like that's really encouraging to have four high danger attempts and to have four goals on that. Like, Mm-hmm. there's a potential there if they can put him in the right position to succeed. And obviously there's an individual component to him. It's not just on the team, it's on the player. It feels like he looks fresh for the season. He's going to get off to a strong start. And I think getting off on the right foot is so big for him after last year. So we'll see how the team kind of keeps finding ways to maximize him in this lineup and figures out ways to help him shine and play to his strengths a little bit more. You know, in a lot of ways, we still see the ghosts of the old uh, Jim Benning um, administration all over the Vancouver Canucks. And, you know, I remember, you know, Brian Burke in you know one of the more numerous times working with Brian and him always telling me, we used to always talk about putting teams together and, he'd, and he used to always say, like, look, you need to you need to spend a couple of years shoveling out the barn before you can show the horse. And, you know, that's kind of where Vancouver is <laughs> is at right now, putting, you know, what this what this team is actually going to look like for Alvin and, and Rutherford and their head coach. Um, Rick Tockett, but it's a team that plays in all of a sudden a, a murderous division um, despite what happened last night with the Oilers. Oilers were a cup contender. The cup lives in Vegas um, with Los Angeles despite losing last night to Colorado. That's a, a, a cup contender according to many. I think Calgary is the wild card. How do you see Vancouver fitting into all of that in the Pacific? Yeah, the Canucks are a tough one because they don't have the easiest path forward in division. Uh, it, I would, I would probably guess that two wild card slots are going to go to the Pacific, so that does help them. Um, the mm-hmm. Central, being I would guess probably the weakest division right now, can work in their favor. But it does feel like you know the deck is kind of stacked against them because so many teams have surpassed them, and they've been the yeah. team going through this process a bit longer. So that you'd hope that they're further along, but. It's, it's going to take a lot, and it, and it comes from, like, all elements of the lineup, right? It, it's that defense showing some signs of stability. It's the offense having a consistent attack and being more than just power play scoring. It's the goaltending bouncing back, which, you know, I'm pretty confident it's going to happen this year, too. So even if everything clicks the right way, it's still not, you know, the door's open, here you go, run with the opportunity. It's, you have to scratch and claw it to get there. So it's not going to be an easy year, but I feel like they're going to be in the race till the thick of it. You know, maybe they come out on the better side of it this year. But if they can get off to a strong start and aren't digging themselves out of a hole, you know, come November 1st, that's going to be a difference from years past that I think is going to really help them. 
Uh, I want to get to the Rangers and the Devils here in a couple of moments. By the way, if you're just joining us, Lindy Ruff joins me in about uh, in about a, just under an hour's time here, head coach of the uh, New Jersey Devils. I want to ask you about the Buffalo Sabres and, and that not just that team, but that market as well. Um, Owen Power re-up, seven-year extension, $58.45 million. So the AAV is 835 um, per season for Owen Power. So now Tage Thompson is wrapped up, Dylan Cousins is wrapped up, Rasmus Dahlin, Matias Samuelson, and now Owen Power. We'll see what happens with, with Devin Levi because uh, right now that seems to be the only position they don't have locked up long-term. Um, what do you make of Kevin Adams as a general manager? Locking up. I want to ask you about the market itself, and could Buffalo be the new Chicago by way of power hockey market? But what do you make of Kevin Adams' work with this roster so far? I like it so far. I feel like they're taking a very smart and measured approach, and I think everybody wanted to see. Everyone loved the Buffalo Sabres last year, right? Like they were the exciting team. We all yeah. were watching them, and it felt like a nice swing for them that you could have wanted to see management go big at the deadline, reward the players for progressing as much. But I like that they kind of kept it kind of, you know, lower key because at the end of the day, they weren't ready. And I think if they made some big move, it would have like masked any weaknesses in their game. And the better choice was just missing the playoffs and resetting for the next year and just, you know, following the path of this course. And obviously I think now they're in a different position. Like now it's okay. You have to turn the corner. But I like the way that they've built this team. Mm. They have some really, really, really smart minds in that front office. Guys like Sam Ventura, you know, Stanley Cup winners from Pittsburgh. He is absolutely brilliant. So, you know, you can see the impact of using a more innovative approach here. But I like how they've built the roster because, yes, it's a lot of money given out to a couple players. But you build a core and you pay them. And you pay them through their prime. And that's really important. That's what they did with, you know, Dylan Cousins. And that's what they did right here with power they're going for those big contracts and that's what you know they came into it second contract let's pay these players because in other circumstances it's the third contracts and that's out of kevin adams control you know with darlene and with tage thompson but and even like that big skinner deal but it feels like they figured out this is our core this is who we're going to maximize and we're going to get cost-effective deals around that and we're going to maximize entry-level talent and see that with players like you know zach benson right now that is so important if you're going to invest a ton in your core, which I think is the right strategy to do, you need to maximize those entry-level years because that's going to be some of the most cost-effective contracts you could ever get. So then, and sticking with Benson, and you know the, 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 the wisdom had always been don't let them get to you know, past the nine-game mark or you're going to burn a year of their, of their entry-level. There is a thinking now, and there has been for a few years, that don't worry about letting them blow through that stop sign. Like, go play game number 10. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just don't let them get um, to 40 games. You don't get them that closer to, to unrestricted free agency. And actually, you know, the thinking of, you know, let them burn their first year in 10 or 12 games because then it makes their, you know, the, their case for a big second contract that much more weaker because they don't have the numbers to back it up. Sort of strategically, you know, let them surf 10, 15 games, then send them back. Benson's case would be Wenatchee, uh, the wild of the Western Hockey League. That way, when you, sit down, when you sit down to negotiate with them, they can't make as big a case as they normally would if you let them go for an entire season. Yes, normally. But with Benson, I think he still has a case for it because you can look at Dylan Cousins last year. They extended him, you know, months earlier from his contract and he didn't even have a full season yeah. of NHL play under his belt. They knew what he was. So they're a little bit bolder with it. We see the trend of young players getting these big second contracts and we saw it a lot with forwards 
Matias Samuelson was kind of the first defenseman in that group with the Tim Stutzlers and Josh Norris's and Cole Caulfield's of the world getting that big second contract. And now with Sanderson and Power, it's starting to be a little more well-rounded. It feels like the Sabres are one of the teams the most willing to take that leap on the young players. And so I'm not, I wouldn't be as much worried about that. But I think the nine game thing makes it's different for different teams in different situations, right? It's if you're a contender and you are strapped, right? You know, right now for money, you know your near future is tough. You might be looking at it a little bit differently, even though you really do need to maximize those ELC years. But when you're the Sabres and you have the cap flexibility, you know, you can afford to spend a little bit more and say, it's no problem, like, forget the nine games. And in this case, it just feels like he's exactly what they need right now. With Jack Quinn out, you're missing that really good young shooter on that second line mm-hmm. that you can have Benton, who is good at everything. It's going to save them from making a mistake on saying, hey, maybe we need Patrick Kane. Like, hey, maybe we need an aging veteran who's terrible defensively and is going <laughs> to, you know, amplify a weakness we already have. So if you have someone internal that is going to develop along the along the way and contribute to something you legitimately need, it's a win-win for everyone. But I still do think that Kane ends up in Buffalo, don't you? I still don't think he should. I don't think there's any circumstance that he's what they need. I think if they need to get anything, I like the Jordan Greenway of a young forechecking forward to kind of add some of that tough to play against but legitimate skill. You know, I feel like tough to play against. Sometimes we think of fighters and the Nick Villarreal's of the world. But for me, I'm looking at it of, you know, having a stronger cycle game and having a better forecheck and just being more aggressive on the puck. And that's why I love that Greenway acquisition. You're, you know, he's 25 years old when they get him or 26 years old. I think that's what they need to keep targeting because they have the skill at the top of their lineup and they have those defensively flawed forwards in Tage Thompson and Jeff Skinner. Yeah. And while we love them for their offense, those weaknesses are there. You can't add to it. You have to just keep rounding out your skill set. By the way, my hot take team for Pat Kane at the end of all of it, the Dallas Stars. Do you have a hot take team for Patrick Kane? The reason I say Stars is I, I, I look at the right side, and after Joe Pavelski, there's a bunch of question marks. Uh, do you have a hot take team for Pat Kane? Is it a hot take team if they were interested in him last year, though? You know? Um but I, I think that one definitely makes sense. But they're interested in everybody. And the other one. But they're interested in everybody last year, though. This is well. You should be. That's the thing. I think we need tiers. I feel like I said this before, but we need tiers on level of interest. Like everybody should be kicking the tires on everybody. You, that's doing your job. And then it's you know levels of actual yeah. interest and actual pursuing from there. But um, my hot take team, I guess I don't think they're even that hot takey. But I would say someone like Colorado. You know, just get an extra winger in there. I feel like there's someone that can hide a lot of defensive gaps in the player's game and just have that extra playmaker in the middle six would be good for them. Let me ask you about Buffalo the market. Now, here, here's what I wonder about. As we're starting to see the rise of the Buffalo Sabres, and it, it seems as if there's a sort of fight now. It's, is it going to be Ottawa? Is it going to be Detroit? Is it going to be Buffalo? I think that Buffalo and Ottawa are uh, a cut above uh, the Detroit Red Wings. We'll see. They open up tonight in New Jersey against the Devils. Um, but as we're starting to see the rise of the Buffalo Sabres here, it's going to be an interesting phenomenon because this is a market, as you well know, that... Um, responds to hockey games even when their own team isn't playing. Here's what I mean by that. On nationally televised games in the United States, uh, let's say Chicago is playing Pittsburgh, the two top markets watching those games are going to be Chicago and Pittsburgh. 
but consistently for years and years and years, usually the third market is Buffalo. Like this is a market that, you know, when the team's good, they'll show up. But even if they're not showing up because the team's bad, they're still watching hockey. Like to me, it's still a great hockey market yet to explode. Not unlike what Chicago was uh, before their three Stanley Cup explosion. Do you have a thought on Buffalo, the hockey market, and what happens when this thing finally pops? Because we saw this with Chicago and how many times did, you know, the NHL hustle them into winter classics. I can see the same thing with Buffalo. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they're the exciting team. They're the ones we're all talking about. And I think if they don't, I think it is a little bit of a make-or-break year because I wonder how many people are going to kind of give up on the favors and be like, well, it was fun while it lasted, but you're not very good if they don't do something this year. But, yeah, it's a great market. It's passionate fans all around Buffalo. Uh, they should definitely be pushing them into the national spotlight because people want to watch Tage Thompson and Dylan Cousins and Rasmus Dahlin, rightfully so, and people want to see what this team's going to do. It's a young, up-and-coming team, and they're different from Chicago because Chicago pay all their players after winning championships, which, you know, costs get out of control then, and then all these subtractions have to happen to balance everything out. And Buffalo is different because they're going into the start of their window, which really hasn't even fully opened yet, with all these players locked up. It's a cost-efficiency strategy that's totally different from Chicago that could make this a way more sustainable window that could be even more exciting. So if the NHL's smart, they're going to, which, you know, that's up for debate. If they're smart, though, they're going to get behind Buffalo and push them nonstop, and I think it could be so much fun. Like, think about it. We all see the clips of Bills games and people going through tables. Like, we need that energy at Sabres games. We need Sabres tailgates. (laughs) We need these outdoor games. Everyone going through tables. Everyone having a great time. Like, that's what we want to see. That's what we all need. We're all going to want to be there for it. That, that's interesting because the uh, you're right about that strategy because that strategy sort of builds towards you know repeats of championships as opposed to you know what we saw with Chicago or what we saw with Los Angeles, which are essentially bunny hops. You know, uh, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward. Like that's what that's what those Stanley Cups were. I guess to your point, then the idea of locking them up before the window opens. That just controls your costs and allows you to keep teams together and not have to strip them down after you're successful. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're going to see, we see that we're going to see that with other teams because other teams are doing it. New Jersey Devils are the prime example of it too. You look at the Brat contract and the Hughes contract and the Dougie Hamilton contract. Most of these players are players they already had. And then they, you know, pinpoint, hey, an elite player made it to free agency in Dougie Hamilton. We're going to lock him up. And it all started before the start of their window. The Rangers did that, too, technically, because they were still um, rebuilding very quickly as they were signing those big contracts to guys like Mika Zibanejad and Adam Fox and Jacob Truba and Artemi Panarin. The difference is they had slight overpayments on numerous contracts, and that could burn them. You know, like the Truba deal, you might say it's what they needed at the time, but it was a little expensive at the time. It's only looked more pricey as it goes on. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little bit trickier for them, and some of the players were a little bit older. But Buffalo and New Jersey are going to be these two teams to watch on how they've balanced the books and how that's going to benefit them or not over the next couple of years. I mean, we might say, wow, they've tied their hands together like the Maple Leafs, right? Because the Maple Leafs did this too. Matthews got his first big contract and Marner did. But again, it's those slight yeah. overpayments that made it a little dicier. So I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how this works out because I think this feels like the right way to build a team financially in a cap environment. 
Let me ask you about the Rangers here. I got a couple of moments left with you. And, you know, Zibanejad's going to get headlines. Shesterkin's going to get headlines. Adam Fox is going to get headlines. How much, or Tammy Panarin, how much of what the Rangers are doing this year or what the Rangers will do this year is essentially an audit on where they're at with Alexi Lafreniere, i.e., is this the season that Chris Drury and the Rangers make up their mind on Lafreniere, what they have there, or maybe what they don't? Yeah, I think it has to be. Um, it's tough. We put so much, you know, so many expectations on first overall picks, and it's because we've been spoiled by others. The Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby's of the world, and right now Connor yeah. Bedard. We're we're getting spoiled by that. That we forget a prospect can have a bad first season. Jack Hughes did. The difference is. The Devils put Hughes in every position to succeed since then, and the Rangers didn't do it laughing year. So it's self-inflicted to an extent. Obviously, it's on the player, too. But it is, you know, the minutes at 5-on-5, five five, the lack of power play opportunity has been crushing. And now here's someone going on their third coach. And each coach has, you know, had a totally different philosophy, right? You have David Quinn, the coach you'd expect to develop a player like Lafreniere. That didn't work out. You have Gerard Gallant, who is not, you know, an X's and O's coach and is a win-now coach and has never had a reputation for developing players. So that's another strike. So now you come into it with a third coach of the young career, and you have to think this has to be the year for, you know, things to click. And it feels like at five-on-five, this team is primed to be better because it's a team-wide problem the last couple of years. It's not just on one player. The entire team of five-on-five has dropped off. You look at Mika Zibanejad, and you have to question, is it age-related decline, or is it, you know, a consequence of a lack of systematic help from the coaches? And the same goes to Artemi Panarin. If it proves to be a team-wide problem and Lapinier improves with the team, then, you know, they really don't have that much to worry about as long as they just keep maximizing his game and get putting him in ideal minutes. And right now that's on the right side. So keeping him there and letting him sink or swim instead of giving him two games, throwing him back to the left and jumbling things like it's been, I think it's contingent on more than just him now. I think it's the Cacos and the Heatles of the world because the Rangers' rebuild only worked if they could find a way to maximize the young core with the, with the old core. And there's mm-hmm. been so much emphasis on the old core because some of the young guys haven't broken out, and it's primarily been offensively. You know, you look at Kandre Miller and Adam Fox, they crushed it. So it's hard to say, well, this team can't develop yeah. players. But there were minutes to be had, and someone had to take them, and they took them and ran with it, versus up front, there weren't mm-hmm. minutes to be had, and these players didn't get the shot. So I think we're going to see a big year from Kako. I think we already saw the big year from Hedl, and we're going to see more of that yep. this year, especially if you stick to Panarin. So now it is make-or-break time for Lafayette. Fantastic. Um, always good catching up. Uh, let's do it again real soon. Enjoy this evening, seven games. Do you have a, a game of the night for uh, for you, like one that you're most interested in? We got, uh, you know, Philly-Columbus, the return of Prover. Well, I guess it's not in Philly. It's in Columbus. But Prover versus his <laughs> old team. Uh, New Jersey facing off against Detroit, Dallas, and, and St. Louis. Like, is there one tonight that's uh, that's a lot of spice for you? Yeah, it's exciting to see Detroit, but it's tough against the Devils. I don't think it's like the best measurement. I'm excited for Rangers Sabres because I'm really excited to see the Sabres and um, Minnesota, Florida. Like, I really want to see how that Florida blue line looks with all the injuries and it going up against a team like so, you know, it's so defensively sound in Minnesota. It's two totally different playing styles. That one is definitely one to watch for me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that Florida blue line, man. I really don't like that Florida blue line until I and Brandon Montour get back. That could be ugly. Um, The great Shannon Goldman dropping by the program today. Thanks, Shannon. You be well. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay with the Yankees. Your team's going to buy their way out of problems as as they always do. You know, 
Of course that's what they're going to do, all right? At least we own that. That's how it is, all right? <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, thanks, Shana. You're the best. Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. Lindy Ruff coming up at the top of the hour, head coach of the New Jersey Devils. They open up tonight at the Prudential Center against the Detroit Red Wings, one of seven games on the board. Also uh, on the board, the Columbus Blue Jackets facing off against the Philadelphia Flyers. And a couple of interesting things here. One, like, uh, as we all know, this is, you know, Provorov against his old team, but also uh, Kent Johnson, Liam Foody, and Adam Boakfist. Young players, right? healthy scratches against the Flyers this evening. Now, the question is, does that mean that any of these players are on the block or are these players being held out so they can showcase other players who are on the block? Aaron Portsline covers the Blue Jackets for The Athletic. He joins me to answer that and other CBJ-related questions. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Back in a moment. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Top of the hour, uh, New Jersey Devils head coach Lindy Ruff will stop by, who uh, tonight continues what's going to be now 30 years of uninterrupted service behind an NHL bench that stretches back to 1993 when he was an assistant with uh, Roger Nielsen's Florida Panthers. That is remarkable. Uh, Meantime, uh, one of seven games on the board this evening, Nationwide Arena, Columbus Blue Jackets facing off against the Philadelphia Flyers. Yes, it is Ivan Provorov versus his old team. A couple of interesting comments uh, thrown Philly's way by Provorov this morning. And some interesting healthy scratches to one, two, three young Columbus Blue Jackets players. What does it all mean? Aaron Portsline from The Athletic here to make sense of all of it. Eric, thanks so, or Aaron, thanks so much for stopping by today. How are you? Hey, you bet, Jeff. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, the, yeah, those, and the pleasure is all mine. When we talk CBJ, you're the one that, that sharpens the pencil uh, the most for us around here and a lot of other places as well. You've covered this team for a long time and, and, and know it in and out like few others. So here's my question to you. So, you yep. know, Foodie, Johnson, um, who else? We have Boquist on the back end, all scratched tonight for tonight's games. And, you know, the joke's online. Oh, I thought Babcock wasn't coaching this team. Why are all the kids getting scratched? Yeah, but I look at it and I say right. one of two things. One, does that mean that we're looking at these three kids maybe being trade pieces somewhere down the line? Or do we look at this and we say, you know what, maybe one or two of these scratches means they're giving an opportunity for someone else to showcase themselves for a future trade. Or it maybe it's just even too early to read into any of it. I've given you three options there. Maybe a mystery yeah. door number four you want to open. Which one makes the most sense to you, Mr. Portsline? Yeah, so you mentioned Babcock. The, the word around the rink today was, is Tortorella still making the calls around here? I mean, he's back in town with Philly. Um, is he is he picking out both lineups? You know, I think each of those have to be looked at differently. The foodie one um, is, I think, his performance is fit. He has to go on waivers to go to Cleveland. They kept him here all last year. I think it's the same here. He's, I think he's clearly the thirteenth forward to them. He may he'll, he'll play at mm-hmm. some point, of course. But I think the Johnson situation is its own 
thing. I think it's Pascal Vincent wanting to reward people based on their training camps. And Emil Bemstrom's a guy that's been around Columbus for a while. Uh, Bemstrom took Johnson's spot in the top six. I don't think it's a permanent thing. Historically, nothing against mm-hmm. Emil Bemstrom. He's had good camps before, and he's not been able to sustain it in the regular season. I think this is his fifth season with Columbus. Um, but he took his spot. He also took Jack Roslovic's spot in the top six. Roslovic is playing tonight, but is an odd fit on the fourth line with Corrali and Robinson, that, that which of these three is, is not like the other. Um, Boakvist, I do think, is tra- it's not trade-related. He's not scratched because they're going to trade him, but I think he's the odd man out and, and a player that very well could be on the move. I think they were hoping to get something done before the season started. They ended up sending David Juracek back to AHL Cleveland. Uh, most people would who observe camp would say Juracek clearly a top six defenseman. I don't think it's the end of the world if he has to go to Cleveland and continue to develop. There's still some things he can he can uh, brush up on, absolutely. But then you look at the lineup and you see Andrew Peak next to Wierenski on the top pair, and you go, well, that's not something most mm-hmm. people would have expected either. So there's been some interesting choices. I think they're all a little bit different. I think they're all extremely not permanent, and by Saturday – uh, some guys that are out tonight could very well be right back in. Okay, there's a lot there to what you just uh, laid on all of us. So one, uh, for those, because he's not exactly a household name, Emil Bemstrom is someone, yeah. and you're a lot closer to it than I am, but every time I watch this kid, man, can he ever hammer a puck. Like, uh, there's like, yeah. the, the high standard is, you know, Martin Martin Furk, who could hammer it like nobody else, but I watch Emil Bemstrom take one-timers and... Yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on this one. This guy just has a jackhammer of a shot. He does, but he has a, a, how to say it, a shrinking confidence that I think you don't see it in games. You see it in the preseason. You see it in practices. You see it in inter-squad scrimmages. He led the Swedish League in scoring as a teenager, which is rare. And it... That one-timer was all we heard about before we got over here. Really haven't seen it in games. He's had, had a hat-trick at the end of, of the season a couple seasons ago. Um, and every time there's a little bit of traction there, you go, okay, well, maybe it's building and maybe here it comes. He's been a solid player. just hasn't been the, uh, the offensive impact player that they thought. Maybe Pascal Vinton, a very different voice than the coaches who have been here before and breed in him a little level of confidence that he can bring into games. But there's some, I think it's performance anxiety with him that just does not allow him to fully be loose and play. And they're hoping he gets over it. It's another chance tonight. Yeah, you mentioned Jack Roslovic a couple of seconds ago, too. And, you know, he was part of the Pierre-Luc Dubois-Patrick Laine deal with the, with the Winnipeg Jets. It's been a, it's been a challenging go. Uh, to be generous yeah. for for Jack Roslovic with the uh, with the Columbus Blue Jackets and and I'll tell you, as we all sort of play fantasy general manager uh, Aaron, and we all do it. Um, when uh, when Elliot broke the news about uh, Connor Garland in in Vancouver, uh, and his availability and you know being a, the agent Judd Muldaver being allowed to you know, help facilitate a trade. I wonder if there could be anything between Vancouver and Columbus involving Garland and Jack Roslovic. 
Um, how married? I mean, he's a, he's an impending UFA, but how married or maybe you know divorced are the are the Columbus Blue Jackets with this player at this point? Because that one that one kind of made some sense to me. Again, this is only in my mind. I don't know the two sides have spoken. Sure. This is just in in my brain here. I, I look at a, a need on the right side. Um, for the Columbus Blue Jackets, and I look at a, a struggling player in Jack Roslovic who continues to slide down the lineup and is on an expiring deal, and he makes less than Connor Garland, and it just kind of feels like a fit. But where's the team at with with uh, with Jack Roslovic? Yeah, well, the tricky thing to all of this is where is Jack Roslovic from? Columbus, Ohio. Like yeah. they want this to they want this to work. I don't think that overrides. Yarmo Kekalainen's willingness to do something. In fact, I think he's been open-eared for a deal involving Roslovic all summer, especially after the draft when Santilli came to them and, and changed their center ice depth. Uh, you know, the first sign you see in training camp is there's no Roslovic on the power play. I mean, I'm not sure he's the power play guy on a Stanley Cup winner, but he is here, um, not even on the mm-hmm. second unit at any point in practice. The next sign you see is he's no longer playing center. When they start camp, it's easy. You've got two or three groups. You can can have eight centers, really. Um, when you start to get into a small group, somebody's got to move, and it was Sillinger, and it was, it was Roslovic moving. He's played only center since he's been in Columbus. Now he's moved to the wing. So he's lost the power play. He's lost his preferred center spot. I, I think they've been willing to trade him all summer. I think they've been willing to move pieces all summer this is not an easy league to make trades in right now i am sure they have talked to vancouver about connor garland i think they've talked to most teams in the league there was a sense here a couple days leading up to the season that something was gonna uh break before the season um but it's this is not an easy time the blue jackets have three million bucks under the cap that's comfortable um but i'm not sure they want to add too much to that especially with some of the the contracts coming up in the very near future. Uh, speaking of the center position, I I love watching Patrick Laine as a center. I really do. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious your your thoughts on this one. Just for me, first of all, just the visual because you know I've I've let the concrete harden around Patrick Laine as a winger, and that's it. And he's there to rip that you know really violent shot of his. And yeah. you know, I need to unlearn more things, and that's one of the things that I'm happy to unlearn. And I just love seeing Patrick Line in the middle. Aaron, your thoughts? Yeah. Well, th- so this is all Tage Thompson, right? This is literally Line looking yeah. at Tage Thompson's yeah. explosion last season and saying, yeah. huh, how about that? Now, I, when this happened late last season, it was kind of a, you know, what, what the hell? Let's try anything. <laughs> the season's lost. Um, go ahead. What else do you want to try? Um, and I don't think any, I didn't yeah. take it seriously. And I must say, with, with under if Mike Babcock's still here, Patrick Laine is a winger. He started camp that way, and then he and he and Pascal Vincent had a heart to heart. Really, nobody knows him in this league. I shouldn't say that. Few know him better in this league than Pascal Vincent, who was with him as an assistant in Winnipeg as well. Um, and they had a heart to heart about it. Patrick wants to play center. He wants to try it. And I have to say, uh, I've, I've been sort of, I don't want to say, I, I've been hardened around line A2. This is what he is. He's, a, he's not a leader-type player. He's a lone wolf. He kind of goes his own way, does his own thing. He's going to score you some goals, so you put up with some of the other stuff. He has changed this year. 
who took Adam Fantilli under his wing when Fantilli came to Columbus and said, live with me, I can show you around. Patrick Laine, I would have never guessed that. I would have guessed Corrali, Wierenski, Jenner. I, I would have gone through 12 guys before I got to Laine. He has carried himself with a mm-hmm. different sort of air this year. He is now trotted out at media day as a representative of the leaders in the room. Um, he's really, they found a way to integrate him at, I think, at a new level. And the center position, he's really driven to make this work. If you have a driven, motivated Patrick Line, you've got a player. And he has not put it all together yet in Columbus. He's not stayed healthy and gone on those 40-goal barrages as he did early as a Winnipeg Jet. It, there's a feeling with many that this could be uh, the year where he finally sort of claims that in Columbus. Fingers crossed. Uh, I love him for a lot of reasons, um, and one of them is when he gets styled up, he looks like Max von Sydow from the movie Strange Brew. No one comes close to looking yeah. like Max von Sydow, uh, quite like Patrick Laine does. Uh, real quick, i got about uh, 60 seconds left with you. Um, the Metropolitan Division is fascinating. There is Carolina, there is New Jersey, and then it is jump ball. Yeah. Does this team have a shot? Does this team, like, legit with a with a healthy Zach Wierenski, which they didn't have last season, do you think this team has a shot? You know, I, I have a hard time putting them above the Rangers. I have a, you mentioned the Devils in Carolina, of course, one, two. Beyond that, I have a hard time putting them above the Rangers. I think Pittsburgh and Washington may have some uh, – something to say after last year. I think that's probably four or five in some combination. Um, I think the Blue Jackets have a, have a shot to be better than people expect, although that's a low bar, 59 points last year. That's a long way to come. I think it's going to be choppy early. New coach, new system, lots of young faces, uh, old faces in new places, line A moving to center. Does that work? It may work against Philly. Does it work against Toronto? Pittsburgh, these teams with mm. incredible center depth. I, you don't know. There's a lot, you know, does Severson and Provorov just fit right in, or do they have that difficult first-year adjustment that many free agents do? There's so many variables here. As I like to say, it's there's more ifs than a bread concert. There, there's optimism. <laughs> there's optimism here. But there's so many yeah. things that have to work. I think they're going to be fine, but I'm not sure if it's right away. We shall see. Um, Aaron, you're the best. Thanks as always. Uh, No one knows the jackets like you do, pal. We'll check back soon. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Aaron Portsline from The Athletic covering the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, Tonight they open up their season at Nationwide Arena against the Philadelphia Flyers. Time now for Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. And with that, we'll bring in Matt Marchese. Matty, how are you today? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I am doing well, and uh, we have seven games on the board this evening. Which one has, as I asked Shana, the most spice in your chili tonight, Maddie? Oh, that is absolutely the Sabres and the Rangers in Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo yeah. is a home underdog, which, I mean, for a team that has improved as much as them, uh, maybe a little bit surprising. Uh, the Rangers are 12-5 and five in their last 17 meetings in Buffalo and 26-9 and nine in their last 35 meetings overall. Uh, the under is hit in 20 of the last 26 meetings in Buffalo. And Jeff, this is my favorite stat because this is something so quirky that even you will love it. 
Um, this matchup oh my. will break the win total tie between these two teams all time in the regular season. Both have won 87 games no. against each other. Really? Uh, that is fascinating. The Buffalo Sabres have since, well, they've only been competing against each other going back to 1970 when both the Buffalo Sabres and the Vancouver Canucks joined the National Hockey League. To me, like, for the New York Rangers, you know, we were mentioning this with Shana in the in the first segment in the A Block, and you know how much of this season is all just about you know, a look under the hood and what do they have in Alexi Lafreniere? Like Zibanejad's going to be Zibanejad. We know Chris Kreider is going to score a bajillion goals on the power play. Uh, Igor Shosturkin is still going to be, with all due respect to Vasilevsky and Sorokin, the best goaltender in the NHL. Period. I know David Amber picked him for the Vesna. I picked him for the Vesna as well. And so did, I'm sure, a lot of other really smart, highly functioning, intelligent people. Nice. Um, I do like the blue line. Uh, love Adam Fox. Could win the Norris this year. Keandre Miller has taken an enormous step. He's sort of the next one uh, on the blue line there. But for the Buffalo Sabres... You know, uh, there, there's one player specifically that I wonder about. Like, I don't wonder about Rasmus Dallin. He could win the Norris. Um, don't wonder about Owen Power. They know what they have there. Matias Samuelson, you know what you're getting. Tage Thompson, go go right down the list. Alex Tuck, who may be their MVP, and even though he doesn't wear the C, is probably the captain of this team. To me, the Buffalo Sabres' biggest question is Devin Levi. Mm-hmm. Now, I know they have a big goalie question to begin with, with um, what's that nagging little thing that everybody's scared of right now? Oh, yeah, goalie waivers. Uh, it's a bad word, of, bad phrase. Five teams or four teams that are, I know, I know, one of four or five teams that are carrying three goalies right now because everybody's terrified to expose any goaltender on waivers. Uh, I know the Buffalo Sabres are, are terrified to, to do so with either Comrie or uh, with Uka Pekalukkanen. But it doesn't happen very often, if at all, and it's one of the hardest things to do in the NHL. And the Buffalo Sabres are going to try to do it with Devin Levi. And that is take a kid from college and make him your full-time number one starting netminder. Like, you talk to Levi and talk to anyone around him. He loves the challenge, all of it. Embrace it. He's looked good. He's looked fat. All of, there is something about being a number one goaltender in the NHL, the hardest league in the world. For hockey, that just changes you. And it's not just, can you have a good October and a good November as well? It's getting into like early, mid-January and early February where it becomes so much of a mental grind. Uh, That to me is the big question. Can Devin Levi, who five minutes ago was playing college hockey, be a full-time number one goalie in the NHL? If the answer is yes then the Buffalo Sabres have a freak of hockey nature. If no, then he joins, listen, a still respectable long line of goaltenders that still need some time in the American League. And then what do you do in Nets? Should be interesting. Uh, like you, Maddie, I'm very much looking forward to this one. It is the New York Rangers and the Buffalo Sabres, one of seven on the board tonight. That was Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Coming up in hour two, in a couple of moments, you'll hear from Lindy Ruff, the head coach of the New Jersey Devils. Also, Megan Mickelson, analyst, listen, former great player too, gold medalist, uh, analyst for the Calgary Flames. So all that is still to come as the Merrick Show continues, hour two on the horizon across the Sportsnet Radio Network. 
and Sportsnet 360. Back in a moment. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Talking hockey for another 60 minutes here with you. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Jeff Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network. And Samulcast, hello to our friends watching on Sportsnet 360. Standing by for New Jersey Devils head coach Lindy Ruff. Is it the game of the night? Might be. New Jersey Devils facing off against the Detroit Red Wings. Also, the Rangers facing off against the Buffalo Sabres. Two other teams that our next guest knows very, very well, having worked behind the bench. Both of those organizations. He is Lindy Ruff. He is the head coach of the New Jersey Devils, and he joins me now. Lindy, how are you today? Thanks so much for stopping by. You're welcome. I'm well, thank you. Uh, so this is, I mean, you're, you're to me, you know, as you embark on this, you know, game one this year, uh, New Jersey Devils, Detroit Red Wings, you know, um, you go back to 1993 when Lindy Ruff calls it a career on the ice and uh, ends up on the bench as an assistant coach with Roger Nelson's Florida Panthers. And since then, uh, you know, tonight marks 30 years of uninterrupted employment behind a bench uh, in the National Hockey League. First of all, congratulations. That is as close to unprecedented uh, for, his, uh, for a coach as you're going to see. And uh, I, I am curious, like when you first took that assistant, I want to get to your Devils here in a second, but when you first took that assistant position with Roger back in that, the 93-94 season, what did you think the rest of your professional life was going to be? <laughs> well, uh, I probably didn't imagine that it was going to uh, take me to where I'm at today for sure. But, uh, you know, I go back to uh, that last year I played in San Diego with the uh, San Diego Gulls in the International Hockey League, and Rick Dudley was my coach. And he said to me near the end, it was the end of the year, just said, uh, I hear your name is being mentioned as an assistant coach with Florida and uh, asked me if I was interested. And I said, uh, I said, I would be, I said that I don't have you know, any coaching experience, uh, but he said, uh, you know, Roger had called him, thought I'd be a, a fit with, uh, with him. And uh, that's basically how I got my coaching career started. What um, I'm always curious about lessons on the way, and you know, listen to to work with someone like Roger Nelson in your in your first shot in the NHL certainly is a blessing. What did you learn from Roger? I mean, he was a, a very unique thinker, a very distinct man uh, in the National Hockey League, and and really in the in the OHL too with the Peterborough Peets. But everywhere he went, he sort of left an impression on everybody. You know, every time I'll you know talk to Dallas Aikens, you know, it'll be Roger Nelson stories. You know, a uh, scout Jeff Tui with the Florida Panthers. Talk to him, and it's Roger Nielsen stories. Uh, what are some of your Roger Nielsen stories? Wow, uh, you know, I I really don't know if there's a better man you you could have been could have been behind the bench with, or uh, a better a better man to guide you, uh, a young man into a coaching career. Because uh, Roger was not only a really good coach, he was he was a real good person. Uh, the way he approached the mm-hmm. game. Um, you know, the details that, you know, I think he, he was really, uh, you know, his details that went into watching a game and, you know, post-game video. And he was, you know, I think he was known for all his video work. And, 
you know, he would have video clips where he would need the volume to go up or the volume to go down, or can we pause it here or pause it there? And, uh, you know, he guided me. I, you know, I still remember the first day that uh, I got down to Florida and I said, Roger, I'm new at this, uh, you know, what do I need? And he said to me, you know, first thing we do is we need to go to Office Depot. We need to get you some paper and some pencils and and stuff for your office. And uh, he took me there. But, uh, you know, I think the, the, the stories uh, for me are just, you know, he cared a lot about his players. He, he genuinely, you know, tried to make sure that everybody felt important. And, and along the way, everybody had a role inside the game and, uh, and that his details for the game were just incredible. Uh, so he was he was an awesome guy to be around. You know, in uh, I'm sure you know this story. It's sort of been well told around coaching circles, I'm sure. When he was the head coach of the Peterborough Peets, uh, and this caused a rule change, a number of number of rule changes that, that Roger ushered in, uh, he would have defenseman Ron Stackhouse go in net for penalty shots, and when the player grabbed the puck at center, Stackhouse would charge out and poke the puck away at the blue line. I think Stackhouse went 7-for-7 seven seven, uh, one year for the Peterborough Peets. I want to get to your Devils, but this final thought on, on Roger. Were there any sort of like wild ideas that, you know, Roger opened your eyes to or the sort of the possibilities of things you could try behind the bench? <laughs> I uh, know I've heard that story before, uh, you know, and I, I I can give you this one other story that I thought was, you know, Roger not only coached hockey, he coached baseball, he coached uh, youth baseball. Yep. And he told me the story that, um, you know, kids couldn't field, kids couldn't field bunts. So he had his kids bunt all the time. And I said, Roger, I mean, the, the only fun you have in a baseball game is, is by hitting the ball and you make all the kids bunt. And he said, yeah, he said, we would win all the time. They, they couldn't feel the bunts and we'd get on base. And he said, we'd always win. And I said, well, he just took half the fun of playing baseball by making a bunt. And he, uh, you know, there's kids that couldn't get the games. He'd go pick up. Uh, but he was, I, I think, uh, an innovator. He thought outside the box, uh, you know, the, yeah. the story about not, not chasing behind the net. And there's, you know, the story about bringing his dog out. Yep. And his dog wouldn't chase behind a player behind the net. And I, I think that, um, you know, stories that he needed time. He needed time in junior. I, I can't justify this, but you know, that he needed time and he had a friend in the stands that, you know, had a handful of coins that were warm from being in his hands. He could throw them out there. Now yep. they picked up all the coins. Yep. Roger had extra time. And so, <laughs> I mean, he really yep. thought outside the box, he could get his best defensive <laughs> line back out there again. And, uh, I thought the, uh, somebody had the one line that, uh, you know, told me that uh, he had a red light in his in his place, and any time there was a, a zero zero game going on, a red light would go off his house, and he'd be able to put it on because he enjoyed defense so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the baseball stories someone so he used to have his catcher would have uh, an apple in his back pocket and then during rundowns the catcher would throw the apple over the third baseman's head and the runner would think that oh he just launched it into left field and would run right into the catcher who had the ball in his glove to get the out like he wasn't just thinking this way for hockey Lindy he was thinking this way for uh, for, for baseball as well um, yeah. let, me, let me get your thoughts on, on, on this, this year's edition of the Devils and I'm curious about one thing specific because I'm looking at I'm looking at Jack Hughes 
um, and and his line, and I see, you know, uh, Tyler Toffoli comes in, uh, and I say, I, I wonder to myself, you know, when when Toffoli first, uh, you know, the, the Diego Sharangovich trade, when Toffoli comes in, and you're thinking, okay, it's Hughes, it's Brad, and now I've got Toffoli there. Like, what was the because that line looks like it might be on it might look like it might be the best line in hockey this year. Um, what's the thinking behind Toffoli being the last piece of that wonderful pair, which is Hughes? And Brat. Well, I I really think Toffoli is a pure goal scorer. Uh, you know, and you've got uh, two guys with with dynamic playmaking ability and, and great speed. Uh, but you have a veteran guy there that knows where to go, knows where to set up, knows where to be, um, and you know probably doesn't need as many opportunities as as some of the other goal scorers or, or people we've had with those guys. So. Uh, you know, the thinking is just try to balance that line, give it, uh, give it an element of just a, uh, you know, a pure goal scorer. And I think uh, Tyler Toffoli brings that along with uh, the experience of, of being able to uh, play the game at both ends of the rink. And, and he's a proven winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is. And that line looks fantastic. Uh, Elliot and I had a chance to sit down with him again. It seems like a yearly tradition. We sit down with, with Jack Hughes at the NHL Players Tour. And uh, it, it's hard not to be a real fan of this guy, whether you're a fan and listening to him in an interview or watching him play. I am curious, considering how creative Jack Hughes is, how much do you say to yourself, I really want to coach him and you know sort of get my claws into his game but he's so dynamic and so creative like where is the line between just letting him play his game but then also I need to be a coach here and sort of guide him and maneuver him in very specific ways you know I I guess I would put that kind of in an 80 20 that 80 percent of the time um, what he does is is something you can't teach Um, I've got this line you just can't teach that um, mm-hmm. because uh, half of his creativity is, is stuff that uh, you couldn't teach to another person. So you, you've got to let him do his thing. Uh, his thing is a lot different than other players. Uh, his lateral movement, uh, his quickness, his ability to you know, s- stop in small ice and create his own space. Um, so I think it's, where the teaching comes in or where you pull him back is, Okay, Jack. We're in a game where it's, um, you know, we've got a couple goal lead. We need we need this to happen. Uh, we don't need this uh, A or B. Um, and you know, when we're going into lockdown mode, or we've got a couple minutes left in a period, or a couple minutes left in the game, and, and I want you to be that guy I can throw over the boards, uh, the details of of you know your your neutral zone pursuit and your D zone play has to be spot on and. And I think that's the part that it, he grew so much as a player last year and uh, has, has basically embraced the thought of, you know, if I'm better in this area, it, it's only going to lead to better things. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other things that Hughes mentioned to us, a, a couple of things were really interesting. One, 
Um, he talked about a sort of emotional letdown after the Rangers series that for the Devils to beat the Rangers, like, first of all, what a great series that was, a flat-out fun series to watch. Just so much emotion in every, not just every game, but every shift of that series. And he said there was that emotional letdown, and it cost them in in the subsequent series, which uh, they ended up losing. We guys ended up losing to the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, But, you know, he also talked about the message after the Seattle Kraken knocked off the Colorado Avalanche, that in the room, a lot of guys were saying, hey, you know what? Anything is possible. We can totally do this. Look what Seattle just did to Colorado. Do you have a thought on on either of those issues, uh, an emotional letdown after the Rangers and you know, being sort of inspired by what Seattle did to Colorado in the playoffs? Well, you know what? I, I think he used emotional letdown, and, and I think he's he's... He's right in some cases. Uh, it was a really emotional series. I think for a lot of players that had have, have never played in in a playoff series, um, you know, you the emotional highs and lows in that series from from going down 0-2 to then winning three games in a row, and you got a chance to clinch, and you've got a game six, and and you don't get that done. To now, now you're back on. Now you're back on you know, back in your own building, you've got a game seven that, uh, nobody has been involved with for the most part. Uh, what the thing I was most impressed with is, is how focused and how well we played in that game seven. Uh, and Mm -hmm. for, for my part, it, it was a tight game for 30 minutes or until Mike McLeod scored his goal. Uh, we played well. We had some opportunities. We we stuck to the game plan. We we weren't playing careless hockey. Uh, but the high after winning that game, uh, I I don't know if it was, you know, an emotional letdown for Carolina or such a high to to beat the Rangers. And and how can you not feel that way after you've just gone through seven games and it's been as you described one, yeah, one heck of a series by both teams. Uh, and then you have to turn around and get ready to play a game, uh, you know, basically a day and a half later or two days later. Uh, so I, I don't know if it was a letdown, but, it, you know, emotionally, you know, coming off of such a high, um, mm-hmm. we didn't, uh, we didn't play our, we didn't play our best. I think we had some fatigue in our game. Uh, I thought, you know, playing right away would help us, but I, I think the, you know, the toll it took on some of our players, uh, just to get us to that point was uh, something that you you learn from and you grow from. Speaking of growing, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll end on this one. You have got a game. You've got a game tonight against the Detroit Red Wings, and I'm sure plenty to prepare for. Um, let, let me end on this one. Um, Players for the New Jersey Devils uh, who haven't gone through it before, and that's a lion's share of your your team um, this year, aren't going to sneak up on anybody. Like, everybody knows how good your team is. Everybody saw how good your team was last year, not just regular season, but playoffs as well. How do you prepare your team knowing that there aren't going to be, you know, you're not going to sneak up and steal two points from anybody this year. Everybody is going to be prepared for the New Jersey Devils. What do you do different with a team that has and skates with expectation now? Well, yeah, there's two things that are part of that. I think by halfway through last year, we were getting a lot of recognition for for how well we had played and where we were at. Um, 
we started to deal with that in the last three months, uh, that there was no team taking us for granted. We weren't surprising anybody that we were sitting in, you know, first or second in our, our, our division and, and in the conference, uh, you know, always up in that top, top two or three teams. So we weren't surprising anybody for the last, uh, 30, 40 games. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've talked about through training camp here is is to embrace. We've earned the right. We've earned the right for that respect now, uh, based on the fact that how well we played. Uh, that defensively we were a better team. Offensively we were we were a real good team. So we know that it, it's going to be a hard year. We know that again there's be teams that you you can't take a single team for granted, and teams will in all likelihood, mm-hmm. try to defend us differently than maybe another team that uh, is maybe uh, not included in the playoff picture. Uh, so we have to guard against any any type of uh, letdown by, by knowing that every opponent we play is going to be ready. But we, we earn that. We, we finish where we finish because we worked hard mm-hmm. to get there. And it's one thing you've got to wrap your arms around and embrace that you, you would rather be there than trying to battle your, your way into the uh, top 16. Excellent. Um, Lindy, congrats on the extension and congrats on 30 seasons of uninterrupted employment uh, behind a bench in the NHL. That is that is no small feat. Congratulations, Lindy. Enjoy tonight's game against the well, Red Wings and best of luck this season. Well, thank you and uh, appreciate you having me on. Always good. Uh, Lindy Ruff is the head coach of the New Jersey Devils. Uh, They open up tonight at the Prudential Center against the Detroit Red Wings, a team looking to take a step not unlike what the New Jersey Devils did last season. Although the New Jersey Devils, we've talked about this before. See, I'm fascinated with New Jersey. And even going back to two years ago, when they had a, a losing season, you could always watch the New Jersey Devils and there'd be a lot of things that you would see and say, okay, that's the that's the, the building blocks for something else. Like eventually this team is going to quote unquote work and the New Jersey Devils are going to actualize as a legitimate and consistent playoff team. And we're seeing the route that leads to the fruit now. You saw that two seasons ago. The problem was everything they did two years ago, and they probably should have been a playoff team two years ago, got completely undone by bad goaltending. You know, what's the old saying about goaltending? You've heard the old cliche before. If you have a goaltender, it's 70% of your team. If you don't, it's 100. And that was true of the New Jersey Devils. That should have been a playoff team. And I know there's a lot of sort of internal hand-wringing and what happened and why didn't we you know, get to the playoffs and blah, 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 blah. The answer was simple. They didn't have goaltending. Now, I know a lot of people aren't, square on, you know, Vanacek and Schmid. Vitek Vanacek, by the way, gets a start tonight for the Devils against the Red Wings. Aren't exactly cool in the gang with the idea of that being the pair or the combo. But, you know, one of two things can happen here. You can either have, as we've seen before in the playoffs, you can either have an elite-level goaltender help get you there, i.e., well, we'll just take last season i.e. the Florida Panthers and Sergei Bobrovsky. Like, Sergei Bobrovsky is compensated as if he is one of the best goaltenders in the NHL. And last year in the playoffs specifically, he demonstrated that he is still one of the best goaltenders in the NHL, two-time Vesna Trophy uh, winner previous. You can either have that scenario or 
this is no offense to Aiden Hill, Logan Thompson, etc. You can either have what the Florida Panthers had, which is elite-level goaltending getting you there, or you can have what Vegas had, which is good goaltending. No one's winning a Vesna Trophy there, but you have a blue line. You have an elite-level blue line. Like, if you could have both... Then you have, like, you know, the Anaheim Ducks of 2007. What a luxury. Then you can say, yeah, we're not too worried about what we have up front. If you can have both, that's great. But you need one or the other. You either need a Vegas-style blue line or you need what Florida had last year, which is A-plus goaltending to get you there. So you have a look at, and I really like this blue line for the New Jersey Devils, whether it's Dougie Hamilton or one of the more underrated defensemen in the NHL, Jonas Siegenthaler, to uh, John Marino and Kevin Ball. Kevin Ball, by the way, good on him. Kevin Ball was a second-round draft pick for the Arizona Coyotes from the Ottawa 67s, part of the Taylor Hall trade so many years ago, and has finally got there. I want to say finally, he's still only 23 years old. But Kevin Ball and John Marino make an excellent second pairing. And then you have one major wild card here, and that is how good is Luke Hughes going to be? You know, none of us know. We know how good Quinn Hughes is, captain of the Vancouver Canucks, three assists last night. Thank you very much. We know how good Jack is. Last year, 99 points. This year, everything goes right. He stays healthy. Should be the first New Jersey Devil to crack 100. That still stuns me, by the way, that there's never been a New Jersey Devil player that has uh, scored 100 points. Jack Hughes poised to be the first, but how good is Luke going to be? We don't know. We think he's going to be really good, but at what point does that happen? And can it be this season? And will he throw a wrench into the Calder Trophy race, which includes the obvious candidate, uh, headline candidate, and that is Connor Bedard, but then Adam Fantilli and Leo Carlson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does he enter that chat at some point? And if so, what does that mean for the New Jersey Devils' blue line? And if that's the case, then are they sheltering their goaltending enough that you can be closer to Vegas and not have to be the Florida Panthers? Am I making sense here? You're picking up what I'm sort of putting down on this one? If you can have both, great, but you have to have one or the other. So for anyone that tells you Pretty much tells you, like, oh, you can't win when your goaltending combination is Vanacek and Schmied. Well, you could have said the same thing last year. You could have looked at the Vegas goal of the Knights and said, how are you going to win a Stanley Cup when you got Laurent Bossois, Naden Hill, and Logan Thompson? Well, you have a blue line as Alex Petrangelo and Alec Martinez and Nick Hague and go right, go right down the list. Shea Theodore. You have a murderer's row of blue liners. That's how the Vegas Golden Knights did it. Anyhow, that should be a fascinating one tonight. Uh, Detroit looking to do what Vegas started to do a couple of seasons ago. I'm skeptical still about the Detroit Red Wings. Not sure where you're at on the Detroit Red Wings. I'm still skeptical about how good this team is going to be right now. And for the second season in a row, this is a team that brought in a lot of new players. And we saw this two seasons ago where it seemed as if, you know, Steve Eiserman had the mandate of bring players in now. Let's move this rebuild a whole lot forward. 
And this season, like last season, was, you know, the introduction of David Perron. This year, it's the trade for Alex Debrinkit. And, you know, are they going to have a 40-goal scorer for the first time since Marion Hossa did it with the Detroit Red Wings? In comes JT Comfer from Colorado. Um, in comes Daniel Sprong from uh, Seattle. Uh, in comes Jeff Petrie from Montreal by way of the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Eric Carlson deal. In comes James Reimer. So there are more players there. Uh, I don't know how much of a significant impact all of this is going to lead into or how much this is going to mean for the Detroit Red Wings, specifically when you consider they're playing in the Atlantic Division and there are three teams that are competing to take that next step. And if they're going to take that next step, you tell me which is the team that's going to come back to the pack. And those three teams, as we all know, the Detroit Red Wings, the aforementioned, the Buffalo Sabres, and the Ottawa Senators. With all due respect, Montreal Canadiens, your time is coming. It's just not now yet. Although they did look really good yesterday, didn't they? Against the Toronto Maple Leafs, a team that's supposed to be good enough to win the Stanley Cup. You have to ask yourself, which team is coming back to the pack? The Boston Bruins, without Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci. Are they going to be the ones that come back to the pack? What do they have last year for points? 135, 136? They could throw away 40 points and still make the playoffs. Or 35 points and still make the playoffs. Maple Leafs are healthy. They're a Stanley Cup contender. They're probably the biggest lock in the Atlantic, specifically when you consider the Andre Vasilevsky situation with the Tampa Bay Lightning there. Now, has Tampa taken a step backwards? Yeah, obviously. I mean, the years of having to spell off players eventually does catch up to you. And then, you know, you knock off one of the top three goaltenders in the world. It's going to be trouble. I know they're 1-0 having just beaten the Nashville Predators on opening night, but still. And then you look at the Florida Panthers, and they're playing the Minnesota Wild tonight, and we'll have a look at what the Florida Panthers can do without Brandon Montour and Aaron Ekblad on that blue line. I don't like it to say nothing about Sam Bennett up front, who's a humongous piece there. Still a really good team, but don't forget, they had to scratch and claw and beg, borrow and steal just to get into the playoffs last season at all. And it took that fateful, and I think it was a Tuesday night, that fateful Pittsburgh Penguins-Chicago Blackhawks game where the Penguins threw one away, and that opened the door for a couple of things, as we've talked about countless times here. One, it opened the door for the Florida Panthers to get into the playoffs. And two, gave the Chicago Blackhawks a requisite number of balls to win the lottery and get Connor Bedard. That game got one team into the playoffs, who ended up in the Stanley Cup final, and the other got a franchise player. Nice wraparound last night, kid. Real nice. Anyhow, um, Detroit Red Wings facing off against the uh, New Jersey Devils tonight, one of seven games on the board. Also want to let you know, uh, the Rangers and the Buffalo Sabres, you can watch that one, 7 o'clock Eastern on Sportsnet. One, you know, as Matty Marchese mentioned in the first hour, that might be the most anticipated game, or it might end up being the game of the night. Expectations certainly high for the Buffalo Sabres and the New York Rangers. Thank you very much. While their winning window is opened, uh, want to get back to their winning ways after having dropped one last season in the opening round to the New Jersey Devils, which was, by the way, I mean, when did we start saying, well, like, at what point did it become really, really obvious that the New Jersey Devils were playing the Rangers in the first round? Was it January? Was it even before that we knew that these were going to be the two teams? I know that, you know, the Devils and the Carolina Hurricanes kind of battled a little bit there for first spot, but there was always a 
feeling that at the end of it, the Carolina Hurricanes were going to claim tops in the Metropolitan Division, and we were going to see the New York Rangers facing off against the Devils, and that's what we got. I love this matchup, and we're getting it early as well. Uh, Ivan Provorov faces his old team, the Philadelphia Flyers. By the way, let me just share with you, because I did not get a chance to do it when I had Aaron Port's line on. Let me share with you what Provorov had to say about his time with Philadelphia. Okay, this is the morning skate this morning for the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. <clears throat> Provorov. Overall, the last three years, the way the team played over there, the way the team played over there. <laughs> they even saying their name. The way the team played over there is just not really my game. It was a lot of rimming and throwing the puck away for a player that I consider myself that can make plays and can contribute and play with the puck. That felt like it was making my game worse. To be on a team that can make plays and is allowed to make plays, it's been really refreshing. I can actually play my game. How much of a shot at John Tortorella is that? So here's the follow-up. Question. Do you harbor any resentment? Are you a turn-the-page kind of guy? To which Provorov submits, It is what it is. At the end of the day, I can't take those three years back. Overall, I think a lot of people didn't really like the way the last three years went over there. As someone that's followed Ivan Provorov's career, going back to the Brandon Weekings of the Western Hockey League, where he just looked dynamic, and I still maintain few, if any, and maybe Victor Hedman is the only one, um, defensemen can make a crisper, longer, harder, more accurate tape-to-tape pass than Ivan Provorov. He's spectacular at it. He uses an enormous stick. It's fascinating to watch a defenseman rush with the puck with his elbow high up in the air, but that's Provorov. But you know what the real answer is? You know what the real answer for Provorov and what happened the last three years with the Philadelphia Flyers is? And maybe it's an oversimplification, but it wouldn't be the first time that I've been accused of oversimplifying something, but here I go. The problem with Ivan Provorov the last three seasons with the Philadelphia Flyers is Matt Niskanen retired. Now, I'm surprised that more other players didn't pack it in after the bubble experience during COVID, the COVID Stanley Cup, but... Matt Niskanen came out of the bubble and said, that's it, I'm done. And the one player that was really harmed by that more than anybody else was Ivan Provorov. The Matt Niskanen, in some ways, I kind of relate to the late, great Brad McCrimmon. And wherever Brad McCrimmon went, they always put the elite-level defenseman prospect with him case in point Nick Lidstrom now Boston Bruins fans and Bobby Orr fans don't like it when I say things like this but I'm gonna always keep I'm gonna keep on saying it to me Nick Lidstrom is the greatest defenseman that ever played the game and what really helped Nick Lidstrom was first year playing with the Detroit Red Wings who did they put him with Brad McCrimmon and it helped him a ton Ivan Provorov was on the right track. Like, Ivan Provorov was on, like, the all-star Norris Trophy track. Let's not forget how well he was thought of coming out of junior hockey. 
and the expect what the expectations were of Ivan Provorov coming out of junior hockey. And I still maintain, and I don't think I'm in a minority here, anyone that's followed Provorov, a lot of it was he got to play with Matt Niskanen. I think of that past generation of hockey players, and every year there's like 20 or 30 that retire. I think there should be a significant, when the book is written, there should be a significant page, much like the generation from a couple of generations before Brad McCrimmon, there should be pages written on all the defensemen that Matt Niskanen helped along the way. Because front and center is the guy we're going to see tonight for the Columbus Blue Jackets facing off against the Philadelphia Flyers, Ivan Provorov. We will hit a break. Um, Let's get to Megan Mickelson here in a couple of moments. Analyst for the Calgary Flames. Uh, Very successful first game. Jacob Markstrom looks good. It is the uh, Flames over the Winnipeg Jets. What do we expect from Calgary? Mick comments and moments as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, so I got a laugh. Just on the break, got a note from uh, legendary, legendary uh, coach, manager, owner, Sherry Basson, who says, Ivan Provorov is not a better passer than Quinn Hughes. Sherry Basson is right. Uh, Quinn Hughes is a better passer. My only point was long bomb, you know, from the back of your own net to the far blue line, tape to tape passes. As for Provorov, always Sean, as does Victor Hedman, who does it probably, probably the best uh, of of anyone in the NHL still uh, to this day. Someone else who was able to make those long tape to tape, long bomb passes uh, from behind her own net. Uh, won a couple of gold medals at the Olympics, a couple of gold medals at the World Championships. Uh, she's torn up like a bad report card. She's all ripped. We've seen the workout videos. We've seen the performances on the ice. And now uh, we get to hear her cover the Calgary Flames on a consistent basis. Flames analyst, the great Megan Mickelson, joins me now. Meg, how are you today? I'm doing good, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I am doing well. Um, did you? Do you have a, a thought on... I'm always curious about specific skills for defenders. And I was just making the point mm-hmm. about Ivan Provorov with Columbus and how he has this ability, and Hedman is the best. Like, I'm not... Hedman is still the best at long bomb passes, tape to tape. No one's better. Um, but as far as, like, the the skills that a defender has, where do you put that one? The, uh, the, the pass where you just sort of sneak out from behind your net and fire it to the far blue line, tape to tape? Yeah, I mean, I would put that up there because it's you see the most elite defenseman making that play and it's it's a tough play to make in the sense that it's not a play that's open for very long so you have to have the vision to see it first of all and then the skill to be able to execute it and I mean simple math it's a that's a long pass to make so it really has to be on it's kind of like a quarterback you know, throwing a long bomb to be able to make a pass like that out of your yeah. own end. It's, it takes a certain skill set for sure. It takes guts, hey? Like, it's a really yeah. great Oh, yeah, move. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Not not one I really ever had. (laughs) Um, Listen, uh, let me ask about the Calgary Flames here. So, to me, the Calgary Flames might be, and I've said all you know. You you do these preseason predictions, and whenever the conversation turns to which is the most interesting team for you heading into the season, I've always said the Calgary Flames uh, Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think that they were as bad as we saw last season. Um, I think that there was a real cloud over the team. Um, and I think that, you know, with Daryl Sutter exiting and Ryan Huska entering, it seemed as if, you know, th- those clouds left. And, I mean, Mick, you're closer to it than I. You're right there. I mean, does it not seem as if there is a, a sort of renewed sense of optimism or, you know, everything just seems a little bit, you know, looser and more relaxed. You know, like the turtlenecks aren't as tight around everybody. When you, like, it just <laughs> seems like it's a more relaxed environment to be in right now, Mick. Is that accurate? Because that's what it looks like from the outside. It's, it's very accurate. And, you know, you think about the team last year and there was so much negativity around the team not living up to expectations obviously going into the season the expectations were so high and then at the end of the day they were only two points out of getting into the playoffs so you consider all of the things mm. that didn't go right for that team last year and how close they were um it, it's been really interesting to look at and, and be around that and then see the transition and the changes that have happened. And, I mean, all of the changes from management to coaches to, you know, players that have come in and out, they've completely revamped their systems. But, you know, the first day that we walked into the dressing room for the media availability, you could feel the difference walking into that dressing room. Like they, they made some changes to the locker room in terms of the design. There's a lot, been a lot of the members of the media that have tweeted that out, but there was just a certain lightness like from day one. And even they have a a golf tournament every year as um, every team does, I believe. And even the environment and the atmosphere was different then. So yeah, I think it's it's talked about a lot, but as someone who is in that arena every single day, you look at the players, the way that they're interacting with the media, there's a certain, you know, lightness and uh one word that the players have been using a lot is fun. Like they wanna they wanna make it a fun environment and um one that will allow them to to really to thrive, I guess. And you know, it's interesting. I've been a part of a lot of teams and it sounds kind of cheesy and corny to talk about having fun, but it really does have an impact on your performance. It does. Like if you're showing up at the rink every single day and it's a positive environment, you like being around the guys, you're having a good time. You're still working hard. You're still working your tail off and, and you want to win and you have that winning mentality. Um, but when you combine those two things, it can be really, really powerful. So it's been really cool to see the impact that it, that it's had on the players as well in terms of how they're playing on the ice. They're just mm-hmm. playing with a little bit more freedom, a little bit more creativity, and it's it's been really refreshing, um, you know, to be someone who's been around that. So they don't have bungee cords attached to their hockey pants that go right back to, to Daryl Sutter where he pulls you back <laughs> deep in the zone. Have they have they got rid of the, the bungee cords now, Mick? Is that what we're understanding yeah. now? 
Yeah, the bungee cords are gone. It's it's funny you say that. I, I had a really good chat with Mackenzie Weger a couple of days ago, and, you know, we were just talking about the changes that have happened, and um, that was one of the yeah. things he highlighted was that you can you play with freedom now, feeling like if you make a mistake, that that's okay. You know, obviously you don't want to make glaring errors that, cause the puck to end up in the back of your net but when you're going out there and you're trying things um and if you you make a mistake because you're trying to make the right play or you're you're trying to make things happen that you know that that's okay and you're not going to get in trouble for it I guess you could say and that really that allows you as a player like you feel like you have a little bit of a longer leash in terms of, you know, just going out there and reacting and playing the game and you're not thinking as much. So I thought that was, it was a really interesting conversation that I had with him around that. You know, I'm, I'm curious about something we call the cascading effect. Now let's rewind to the beginning of the off season. So uh, Tyler Toffoli gets traded for Igor Cherenkovich. It's a the Calgary, New Jersey trade. And Mick, I think we all looked at this and said, okay, here we go. The dominoes are going to start to fall here. Anyone who's on a expiring deal is, is going to get moved. And then it didn't happen. And then we started to hear rumors of captaincy, and we wondered about players like Rasmus Anderson. And could he be the next captain? And then all of a sudden, you know, Michael Backlund signs, a you know, long-serving Calgary Flame, as you know, um, and the C appears on the jersey. This is something that, as I understand it, he had talked to the Flames organization about, I believe, last season or even the season before. Like it's something that he he wanted, and he had indicated mm-hmm. to management that this is something that that he desires. So anyway, so Backlund re-ups with the team, and we say to ourselves, okay, well maybe, you know, this is this is going to be different here. You know, what what we all thought Conroy was going to do is actually ending up being the opposite. He's not going to trade these guys. He's going to try to re-sign all of them. And mm-hmm. when someone like Michael Backlund re-ups, I'm curious what the cascading effect is for other players on expiring deals. I mean, essentially, Mick, what I'm asking you is, does this have any effect on Lindholm, Mangiapane, uh, Tanev, Zadorov? The fact that Backlund's like, no, I'm staying here. Does that cascade to other players? I think it does. But I think I also think that Michael Backlund and the extension and the captaincy, that was also a really big piece in terms of kind of letting like solidifying all of the pieces that needed to be in place for this team to get off on the right foot. So I think that that was step one. I think that mm-hmm. like you look at you look at the game last night and Elias Lindholm, like when he scored, uh, the goal to put them up four to three and the pure like joy on his face. And I think he was like 20 feet ahead of all the other players. Um, you know, when you skate by the bench and give high fives, like he just took off, like he was so happy and so excited. And I think that when you look at a player and Obviously, you want to perform and you want to you want to do well, but you also want to be a part of a team where you feel like you're contributing, um, a team that's winning, a team that's having success, a team that has a really great culture and a good environment. And so, I think that M- Michael Backlund signing 
it set the team up to head in a direction where it's a group that is going to win hockey games and a group that you want to be a part of. So I think at the end of the day, I think it does have a cascading effect in that sense. But I also think that just the entire change of culture and environment and the way that this team, you know, seems to carry themselves on a day-to-day basis coming to the rink. I think that that Mm. has maybe even a bigger effect on the players. Like they're, like I said, there's just so much more lightness and, and fun. And another thing that Ryan Huska has talked about is creating an environment where you want to win for the guy sitting next to you. Like you would run through a brick wall for, for the sure. person sitting next to you. And like when you create that type of bond and that type of like chemistry amongst teammates, that, that's not something that's easy to find. So I think you know, if this team can continue down, I think last night was a really good first step in terms of continuing to go down that path and in that direction. And I think that if that continues to happen, then I think we will start to see the dominoes fall for sure. It's like the uh, the sports lesson of the Kool-Aid man running through walls uh, for one another. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about two players, two two players specifically. So, um, mm-hmm. coming off of last night's win against the uh, against the Winnipeg Jets, um, Andrew Mangiapane had a huge game, as did Jacob Markstrom. Like I look at late yeah. yesterday's game and I say, yeah, things went things went so well that two players that we are really wondering about in the off season had great games right out of the gate. Uh, do you have a comment on one or both of Andrew Mangiapane and Jacob Markstrom? Yeah, I think Jacob Markstrom, I think the first goal that he let in was a shot by Kyle Connor. I think that that's one that he would want back, but you look at the amount of high danger scoring chances that he faced and he made some massive saves and Kale McLean, we chatted with him after the game and, you know, he said that the team can't put him in that situation to have to make as many outstanding saves as he made. I think that when that first goal went in, I think everyone was kind of like, Ooh, is this what we're going to see again? And then after that, it was like save after save after save. And if it wasn't for him playing the way that he did last night, I'm not sure that the Calgary Flames would have won that hockey game. So I think in terms of, you know, a bounce back performance that he would have been looking for, I think it's right up there. You take that one goal out of it and he was absolutely Mm -hmm. outstanding. Like there was a couple of saves where, um, you know, you sit there, you know, how, how on earth did he stop that? (laughs) And so when a goalie is making (laughs) saves like that, like, you know, you know, he's on his game. So he was really, really impressive for me. And Andrew Mangiapane, of course, you know, last season um, he was dealing with a shoulder injury. And so I think that that it must have contributed to his lack of production. He just kind of last night, he looked like his old self again, you know, that 30 plus goal mm. scorer, And, you know, after having surgery in the off season, getting that all fixed and, and tidied up. He just played with a ton of pace. And it was interesting because 
Uh, it was Dylan Dubé started on that top line with Jonathan Huberto and Elias Lindholm. And then after the first period, Brian Husk, I think, recognized that things weren't really quite working. And as soon as he put Andrew Mangiapane up onto that top line, I think all three of them, their games really took off. I thought all three of them had really strong games. Mm. So he just played with a ton of, uh, ton of pace, a ton of intensity and, just made some some really incredible plays. There was the the no look pass from below the goal line to Elias Lindholm on the game winner. I mean, what a beautiful play! So, I think that you know everyone around Calgary and and Flames fans are really hoping that Andrew Mangiapane can keep up that type of play and be the type of player on that top line that can really convert on on his chances and and just be a catalyst for that line. So. Definitely two players that had had really good games. Elias Lindholm was outstanding too. I mean, he had three points and he went twenty one yeah. for four in the face off circle. Like he was he was dynamite. And then Huberto as well, he had two assists. So in terms of bounce backs, there was a lot of really great performances, but they need to clean up their D zone, I will say that. <laughs> Calgary's still the most entertaining team to me, uh, and you're one of the most entertaining analysts. Great job, Mick. Uh, we always look forward to your contributions. Uh, you be well, and we'll check back soon. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Megan Mickelson, the great Megan Mickelson, gold medalist and now gold medalist analyst for the Calgary Flames. Seven games on the board tonight uh, around the NHL. On Sportsnet 1, you can watch the Buffalo Sabres and the New York Rangers. That one is 7 o'clock Eastern. And then the late game, a couple of teams that got, uh, well, Nashville and Seattle is coming up at 8. That's an interesting game. But 10.30 this evening on Sportsnet 1, San Jose Sharks and the Vegas Golden Knights. That's what we have for you on Sportsnet this evening, thanks to David Sis, our producer, uh, Lance Kennedy, and Jen Rolnick, as always, and one of our supervising producers, and the guy that bails me out when the cameras go down at the Broadcast Empire here in my basement, the one and only Matt Marchese. Uh, we're back tomorrow, noon Eastern, 9 Pacific, for more of the Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Talk to you in eh, 22 hours. How's that? <laughs>